from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University. I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Candace Watt-Smith. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, our guest is Ashley Nichols, who is an associate professor at Kent State University and author of the book Power, Participation, and Protest in Flint, Michigan, Unpacking the Policy Paradox of Municipal Takeover. And this book came on to our radar when it won the American Political Science Association's uh, Robert Dahl Award, which is given every year to a scholar who produces scholarship of the highest quality on the subject of democracy. Yeah, how fitting that uh, she should win uh, the Dahl Award, which is very prestigious, named after clearly one of the most influential political scientists, certainly of his generation. And uh, Dahl took on fundamental questions about politics and society. He asked who governs, and he asked who has power and who doesn't. And he did it by studying cities and towns, uh, most famously New Haven, Connecticut. And uh, that's what she's doing, too. And so then the question is, does what he finds then and there help us to figure out what's going on now and in different places? So, for example, when I think about what I know about New Haven in the 1950s is it wasn't very diverse, I I remember there was like a premise, like people kind of basically have the same general goals um, in the community. And so really it was a matter of kind of people plugging in to different parts of the system to have a say, right? That's what pluralism is, is that, you know, some people have money, some people have numbers, some people have a louder voice, some people have connections. And so I actually think that Ashley's book kind of zooms us forward in time, that she's focusing on a a diverse city. It's a majority Black place. Whether there's the same goals is uh, questionable. And then, right, there's like this idea that people have different access to political power and influence. But what happens when the state legislator takes over and says that we're not doing that right now, that the the democratic places where you could plug in, we're not doing that anymore. And also, I think very importantly, in terms of the state government and the state politics and the fact that, you know, in many states, and this is true in many states in the North, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, to a certain extent, in Wisconsin, many states in the North, that you have uh, state legislatures that are much more representative of rural and suburban constituencies are much more conservative uh, than the city governments are. And that the kinds of takeovers and the like that she's describing in this book, and you know, the, 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 the thrust of the book is that uh, the city of Flint was uh, in a, essentially a, a municipal takeover uh, by the state, uh, something that we see a lot in school districts around the country. And in cities as well, often in very poorly funded cities and school districts, often in minority dominated uh, school districts and cities where these much more conservative uh, state governments step in and kind of take over. And when she refers, I think, to a death of democracy, although I'm not sure she's not in some ways describing a revitalization of democracy in some ways in Flint, Mm. what I think she means is that you know, there's a shift in kind of power here from the community 
up to the state appointed uh, fiscal managers who are the essence of neoliberal leaders, right? Their, their entire orientation is around fiscal efficiency and saving money and addressing the fiscal crisis. The other thing I think that makes this book a standout work is that it does do that deep dive. Yes. Right. And in doing so, what she highlights, there's this, there's a, a part where she says, we don't really talk about local government anymore so much as governance. And by that, there are a lot of actors, organizations that get a say and have influence over the way that things run in a in a city. So, you know, she points out in this case, right, there is an emergency manager, but there are also nonprofit organizations, foundations that have an incredible amount of say. There are developers that want to have a say and get influence. And then there are community members too who are, you know, trying to build capacity. So, you know, for me, I thought that really pinpointed the complexity of how democracy can be facilitated or hindered at the local level by so many different actors who are involved or get a say. It's great when you have good timing on a research project, right? So Ashley is in Flint doing this study when the water crisis hits. And, you know, she's really right on top of why the water crisis happens in the first place. And that's because Uh, These fiscal managers come in and decide that they're going to find cheaper water sources because they're looking at the city entirely in this sort of economic framework. They don't live there. The residents didn't have a say on any of this. And that's what got them started. And I think it drives home something important, Candace, about cities, because, you know, you and I in particular like to talk about local politics and that so much of what goes on in the local level is really important to people's everyday lives. And I think this book really nails in on that. But cities and towns where you may have the most hands-on sort of governance from people, where people might be able to be the most involved, that can be taken away in a second. On some level, some of this seems... There, there's a little bit of an irony there insofar as states really value federalism because they would like to have control over the state. And the rationale is that the state is a closer entity to the people. And so they would have a better understanding of how to move forward. And so for a state to then kind of say like, well, Uh, that rule works great for us, but not for you. I don't know. I never know exactly what to think about it. And what Ashley shows is kind of the worst case scenario of when states take over local democracies. Ashley outlines a lot of these issues, both in the book and the interview. She frames it in this this context of a of a policy paradox, uh, which is where we'll start with the interview and can perhaps touch on in the last segment of the show. So let's go to the interview with Ashley Nichols. Ashley Nichols, welcome to Democracy Works. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. I learned a lot from your book, Power, Participation, and Protest in Flint, Michigan. So much about local government that I had no idea about. I suspect our listeners won't uh, either. But um, before we get into some of the specifics of that, I was also intrigued by the way that you frame the relationship between politics and policy. Uh, And I thought that that might be a good place to start 
this conversation. You describe it as a policy paradox. Can you unpack that a little bit and walk us through what that looks like? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm using the term policy paradox and I'm borrowing from Deborah Stone's uh, work in that space. Um, And so in the way that I frame it kind of broadly in the book is that the, the policy that I'm looking at is really kind of advocated by proponents as being apolitical or in some contexts, almost like removing the politics, right? So ignore the fact that policy, in my view, is always political, no matter what, (laughs) that oftentimes policymakers, advocates for this policy talk about removing politics. And they're really talking about removing local electoral politics, right? The elections, fundamentally, and the role of elected officials. But what I argue is that this is political. Even if you're momentarily suspending the authority of local elected officials to do X, Y, or Z, there are longer term political consequences that have to be considered. Not just did the policy do what it said it was going to do, but how did it change people's perceptions of their voice in the local political spaces? How did it change who was brought to the table to shape that kind of even if narrow policy space. So yeah, to me, I think that um, is really just calling out that anything that is perceived as being apolitical often is deeply political and it's worth exploring the the kind of hidden politics that um, don't get talked about as often. That uh, reminds me of we had the political scientist John Sides on our show last year, and he said that any problem in a society is inherently a political problem. There's no way to really take politics out of it. But I wonder, like, why, like, where does this line of, of thinking come from that this is something that is a possible and be a good thing to do and and maybe related to that I, I also wonder if people might be kind of substituting or confusing politics and partisanship that like okay we're gonna take like the partisan divides or whatever out of this situation and just bring in you know some bureaucrat that maybe is um, not biased or objective as as problematic as those things might be Yeah. So I think that's exactly it in many places. So when I was doing research for my book, I did interviews with with people in all spaces in Flint. Um, And one of the questions I asked was, you know, describe to me what politics is like, or what is your definition of politics? Really to get at kind of how people made sense of the term itself. And some of that comes out in the book, but, you know, even beyond what's there, you know, things that really resonated with me are that most people thought about politics as being the election of the mayor and the election and often contentious politics that took place in city council or with city council and the mayor, right? So to remove that and put in place basically a state-appointed manager, which is one of the things that I talk about in the book, is thus removing politics, right? Even though the state-appointed manager is appointed by an elected official with political ends in mind. And kind of the local politics in Flint, I think there is some dimension to the partisanship elements, but technically it is nonpartisan elections (laughs) um, that are taking place. And so I think it's more like the contentious nature of the local political spaces than it is necessarily the partisan. Although I would say that in other spaces that I've seen this play out in some of these, the same language and the same dynamics, it very much is rooted in those concerns or fear or distancing from being connected with partisan politics. 
You've mentioned Flint a couple times. Let's let's dive into that a little bit more. I'll admit I did not know anything about municipal takeovers before I, I read your book. So can you, uh, in case listeners out there are in the same boat, can you explain to us what they are and, and, and how they come about? Yeah. Um, so the term municipal takeover um, is the term that I use. It's the term that's used from some of the scholars at, at Rutgers University. You might also hear emergency fiscal laws or in the state of Michigan, they call it emergency management, which asterisk is really confusing to people who study political science and public administration. But definition of it is basically a local government, a municipal government is in dire financial straits, right? They're they're dealing with all sorts of problems with being able to bring in enough revenue to meet the demands for service that it's required of a local government. And so the state under the policy that not every state has this policy, but uh, the state of Michigan does, is, is monitoring local governments to make sure that they're kind of fulfilling their obligation to meet the needs of their local residents. And if they can't, if they're financially unable to do so, they have a variety of different tools in their toolbox to be able to intervene, support, address that issue. The municipal takeover is specific form of state intervention in that it says that the local government is in a financial emergency. They need immediate help, that they're put in receivership. So basically, the state government is going to take over the responsibilities. And specific to my interest was this kind of policy tool of the singular emergency manager that is appointed by the state government to oversee this takeover. And the policy ostensibly suspends the authority of local elected officials to do the business of local government. So for people in these communities, and and you write about Flint specifically, there's this notion, they say it's like the death of democracy. But I think people on the other side say, well, democracy is already dead. There's like that, (laughs) this kind of conflict that that sets up. Yeah. So one of the things that I found really fascinating and part of the reason that I was intrigued to kind of investigate this policy was that on one side, you're right, activists, community organizers, people deeply connected with especially grassroots organizing, labor organizing, were deeply concerned about this policy and often used the terminology of dictatorship, the death of democracy, right? Like it was a a really significant rhetoric around what this policy was. On the flip side, proponents often use the terminology of like writing the fiscal ship, right? It's apolitical. It's a way for us to make a momentary intervention to address a concern, and then everything will go back to normal after this. I obviously disagree with the everything goes back to normal. But there are these other groups that were really concerned about both what this meant for their voice within kind of the local political space how their concerns would be addressed and heard and viewed, but also recognizing that like the state has to do something. The city is really struggling financially with kind of these ripple effects of, you know, that affect people and their ability to access services and support and local infrastructure. (laughs) There's also, I think, some information in the book about the kind of neoliberal aspect of this. Where does that fit into this picture? So I think Pontiac, Michigan is probably like the quintessential like example of this policy as implemented using 
the neoliberal playbook. <laughs> and I didn't focus specifically on Pontiac, but it definitely, the stories from the city and understanding the history of how this played out in Flint requires that I knew a little bit about what was happening elsewhere um, in the state. And so some of the important players that helped to shape the legislation, who helped to shape the initial legislation, but specifically PA4, were very conservative think tanks um, that have a very specific idea about the role of government, right? So there is a significant emphasis on privatization, public-private partnerships with the private being the emphasis, and minimizing union contracts and all of those elements, right? So that definitely filtered through into the ways in which the policy was implemented. This all is, in some instances, kind of framed or or painted in the language of community development. Is that right? Yeah. So I was really influenced by Richard Harris, who has since retired from Rutgers University um, and wrote a paper on what he calls the community development regime um, and kind of the emergence of, we think about the growth regime or even the urban regime that's talked about in my, in my field, that, you know, downtown developers, local elected officials and, and business have to come together to figure out, you know, they're all bringing different resources to the table, that in cities that have had local political spaces depleted for any number of reasons, but also kind of the economic spaces depleted. He specifically is talking about Camden, New Jersey, and I applied a lot of that kind of concept to Flint. And I, you know, saw that happen or, or that that high capacity nonprofits come in to fill the space of businesses, right? In Flint, you see this in terms of who's invited to serve in advisory roles and is doing the most talking <laughs> about um, what how the policy should be implemented. And, and a lot of those are the high capacity nonprofit organizations, including the Mott Foundation, right? Um, that has its own long history in relationship to the city that kind of people drawn when they when Mott's brought to the table, when um, local economic developers who are associated with the chamber or with Mott are brought to the table, that those long histories resonate with people. So I would ask people about like who's benefiting and, and who's hurting as a result of this policy. And people would be like, the development regime, and they use that language, like mm -hmm. the development regime is who's winning, right? They're seeing the benefits from this policy. And so I, I, I adopted a lot of that language of the community development regime. Hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's tricky because it, it seems to me that whether it's the foundations or even the kind of emergency manager. I mean, no one is is acting in bad faith, right? It's not right. like they're trying to do anything nefarious or, you know, make people's lives worse. They want to, you know, make everything better. That's probably what everybody would say. Yeah. And I think that's really important to bring up. And every time I give a book talk, anytime I talk about the book, I try really hard to emphasize that I don't think any of the quote-unquote power players, right? The, the people with the resources, the people making decisions, the advisors and the emergency managers sought to do harm. They, I think, were there truly in good faith. They really believed that this policy could address the, many of the concerns of the city and that the city would come out the other end more prosperous and better off. I think you, uh, you know, note that most of the concern that I bring up is not that issue. Like, I, I'm not trying to be like, you're bad people. <laughs> but that the implementation of this policy also came with foreclosing access 
to some people, right? So that many people in the city had fewer spaces to voice concerns, to be involved in local politics, you know, the suspension of citizen advisory councils. For better or worse, these institutions, you know, I, I recognize that they are not like the panacea for addressing deep democracy, but also they are spaces for people to to come and make their concerns heard, but also they're symbolic of that my local government cares and that there are spaces for me to be involved in local government decision making. And, you know, there so there were a number of those things that were suspended or eliminated under the policy. And then there were why? Know, other people. Oh, why? Um, usually for financial reasons, right? So the, the typically the explanation that was given was cost, right? To cut costs, we're going to eliminate these bodies, these services, mm-hmm. whatever it might be. And on the flip side, you know, these same people are also seeing some specific people be brought in and gain access to decision-making. They're seeing the benefits of the decision-making. And so that, that's really intention with a lot of people's kind of perceptions of what's happening. And a lot would just say that like, this wasn't for me. This wasn't for me to have a better city. This wasn't for me to have a better life. You know, this was better for very specific types of organizations and for like downtown development. Yeah. So what, I mean, what else changed? Like how was, you know, a, a citizen's life or a, a Flint resident's life different during this, this emergency management period? So I would say that um, I only I start laughing because the Flint water crisis happens as a result (laughs) and under the emergency manager. So the beginning, I think for like the typical person, not a lot changes. There were, you know, but some people were losing their jobs. People were their 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 contracts, their CBAs, their collective bargaining agreements were being renegotiated or changed or whatever. But for the most part, a lot didn't change. But un- it was under the emergency manager that the choice to change water source happened. So in the city of Flint, I didn't go into this quick note, quick asterisk. I didn't go into this with the Flint water crisis in mind. I started studying this in 2012. I did my initial field work in 2015, but before it became national and international news. So I was hearing about it and I knew concerns, but it hadn't really made national and international attention yet. So, but it was under this kind of policy that narrowed the focus to issues of budgets that the water switch took place and caused serious, serious harm. Right. So that is, it seems an outlier of what happens in these situations. It's right. right. Is, is it, <laughs> I think yeah. it became my, I think I started calling it like the worst case scenario, right? Like I didn't go into it thinking that, you know, this horrible crisis would unfold. Um, But it was indicative of like, this could happen, right? When you are narrowly focused on this one thing and you aren't hearing people's concerns because you have narrowed the focus and created like this barrier. When people spoke out, I mean, I had interviewees that referred to activists as rebel rousers and using terminology like stupid. And if they only knew, right? Like they had created this other and I think that really shaped how they then perceived concerns around the water. Yeah. And, it, you know, as you were, were saying that, I was thinking about, like, is is there this sense coming out of it that, oh, man, like, we better really work hard to make sure that we don't end up here again. But it's not even really on 
the shoulders or within the, the, the purview of a lot of citizens or maybe even some elected officials to make sure that that doesn't happen, right? It's a much more complicated picture. Yeah. And I think that's what I walked away with is I wanted to be able to give like a really clear policy prescription. Like this is what I found and this I think would at least address it. And I really walked away thinking it's so complicated because many of the the choices that they made to address budgetary issues were short term. And they didn't address, you know, the reduction in revenue sharing from the, the state, right? <laughs> like, you know, so from that perspective, it was very limited. Um, and other scholars have suggested that these policies are limited in, the, in their success. And, you know, so there's that element. And then on the other element are the consequences for how people understand their role in and their relationship to government. Is that worth it? And I, I mean, I suppose I leave that up to others. I came up down on the side of no. But I'm also someone who lives in this space. So, <laughs> and then, you know, is yeah. deeply committed to well, deep democracy, right? <laughs> I mean, you do cite, though, in the book, there are examples where some of this post takeover period does, you know, reconstitute in a more participatory way. You talk about Mission Viejo, California, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there are other examples. So, um, the state of California does not have takeover interventions, they actually allow for local governments to go through bankruptcy, which comes with its own complications and <laughs> challenges. Um, but Vallejo went, um, used, you know, as it emerged, um, used that opportunity to implement citywide participatory budgeting processes. So there are ways in which I see, you know, the space of emerging from these fiscal crises as a space to kind of enrich participation, in part because one of the things, I think I've referenced it, but I'll kind of reiterate here, is that kind of this middle group of people that were not proponents and were not opposition, it, part of the reason that they they were right in that middle space is because they had a deep knowledge of the budgetary constraints, right? And so they were seeking ways to address it, but they felt really uncomfortable with the policy as it was implemented. Um, so I think being able to recognize that, right, giving people and recognizing that most a lot of people can understand budgets. I think sometimes we, you know, it's boring, nobody cares. Um, but, you know, people have the capacity to understand it um, and giving space to, to, to be involved. You know, some people have suggested to me that, you know, there are opportunities for participatory cuts as well. So even if there's not a pool of resources to be allocated, decision-making opportunities to figure out where to make cuts and make those hard decisions as opposed to kind of concentrating that power um, in a singular individual. You know, so I think there's some some spaces there to, to consider um, alternatives. Yeah. So you mentioned deep democracy before. I know you're you're very involved with civic engagement and, and democracy at the local level in Ohio. Can you um, tell us more about the Growing Democracy Project and in your podcast that you do for it. Yeah. So the Growing Democracy Project got its start in 2018, but we officially launched in 2019. Kent State is situated north of Akron and south of Cleveland. So we cross rural, urban, Democrat, Republican, 
a lot of racial lines, a lot of socioeconomic lines, right? So it's a really interesting space to have these conversations. And it's Ohio. So so we kind of set out to do workshops and, and not workshops like we're going to teach you this concept, but let's be in conversation because we definitely might know kind of the empirics of civic and political engagement, and we might know the the broader academic literature and theories, but we really wanted to bring lived experience and the expertise of on-the-ground knowledge to the table and have what we often call break down those barriers between kind of the expertise of lived experience and the expertise of training. But then COVID happened, right? And so Casey and I were sitting around going, okay, we have this really cool project. We have all of these people that we've brought together to do this work. What do we do now? <laughs> and, you know, we suspended our series. We were really sad to do that. And we decided, you know what, we've been talking about kind of these other means of amplifying the work that we're doing and amplifying the work that people in the community are doing. And so we decided to launch a podcast. So we just celebrated our 50th episode, right? We've had like county auditors talk about like, what does a county auditor do? I elect them, um, but I don't always know exactly what they're doing. That's a lot, uh, but all sounds like really, really great work, uh, and it's and it's it's great that you were able to kind of pivot so quickly. And and I think from what you said, some of the, the content, even though it is grounded in Northeast Ohio, sounds like it might also be relevant and and applicable to people outside of that region as well. We will link to uh, your book and to the the podcast and everything else that you're doing, so folks can check it out and uh, hopefully follow along themselves. But uh, Ashley, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It has been a pleasure. Jenna, as always, great interview. Um, I learned a great deal from Ashley in the interview, just as well as her book. One of the things that stood out to me is this kind of idea about what is politics. And, you know, people will say, like, I don't like politics or let's not make this political or let's get the politics out of this, which is kind of the rationale behind implementing an emergency manager. And so, you know, one of the things I think she really kind of highlights is that you want to sidestep politics, but politics is about power. It's about allocation of resources. It's about the development of narratives, um, which shape how people think, you know, what's a good society and how, what, what policy should be implemented to get there. So, you know, even here, right, talking about, for example, questions of fiscal stability or infrastructure, it, it still is hard to, quote unquote, get the politics out. Right. I mean, anytime you're making decisions about how to allocate resources, then you're making a decision that is deeply political. And when you're doing things that are giving voice and power to some interests over others, then that too is deeply political. There's a sort of notion that if a decision is made by a technocrat on some sort of technocratic basis, then it's not political. But to people within the community, if you know, you've made a decision to go to a very cheap water source and that then affects the way you live in that community, you know, have to start boiling your water, then how could you say that's not political? But th this is often the case with infrastructure, isn't it? I mean, infrastructure has this kind of, you know, I'm thinking it's infrastructure week again, or you know, they're talking infrastructure in Congress. This is the one area we're told that Joe Biden might be able to have nonpartisan agreement because it's just infrastructure, right? Everybody likes a road. 
But, you know, where you put a road is a profoundly political decision. Where you decide to fix it or not fix it is a deeply political decision. Right. And historically, we've seen major highways, for example, have been built through low income, poor and black neighborhoods. So a thing that seems pretty cut and dry can turn into a question of equity really quickly. In the case of of Flint, water, the issue of clean water became an issue of equity. The, the, The other thing I think that Ashley really just pins down so clearly is that what seems like an apolitical decision can have long-term, deep, um, incredibly impactful influence on people's day-to-day lives well after that person, that emergency manager is gone, that road is not going anywhere. The other thing that comes to my mind listening to Ashley is whether the old adage, all politics is local, needs to be updated. And we've talked about this, you, me, and and Chris, too. Um, and, you know, I'm always like, oh, politics is local. We, we've had this kind of conversation about, to some extent, local politics is becoming nationalized. By that, you know, we think about, you know, all politics is local. What's going on at the local level about, you know, where your water comes from, uh, school segregation, access to public transportation, even like whether the coroner is a Republican or a Democrat apparently matters. You know, f- policing, you know, whether firefighters are going to be at your house in three minutes or seven minutes. These are all local issues. But then there is the kind of national, federal, ideological orientation that gets filtered down to the states and to localities. So, you know, for example, you know, since the end of the 1960s, we've moved swiftly toward a neoliberal logic. And both Democrats and Republicans embraced this kind of orientation, and we're seeing it play out at the local level. I think Ashley's book highlights how a neoliberal orientation gets reflected in local politics via emergency managers, and then how communities respond. So I don't know, maybe do we do we need to update it? it? Is there a better way to say all politics is local? Well, maybe it should also be modified by policy makes politics. On the other hand, you know, when it comes to these sort of fiscal matters, where the state still retains all this kinds of powerful control over what goes on in the city, you're going to have a different kind of local politics. And the city can come in at any time. And, you know, this goes back to the original power who governs studies of Dahl, that different kinds of issues generate different kinds of politics and different kinds of groups. And so when it comes to some of these policing issues, perhaps, I think the local cities and communities can have a lot of input on what they do. They have a lot of control over their police departments on the other hand, and over their DAs. On the other hand, on some of these fiscal issues, that might be easily removed from control by the uh, local government or by the by the city itself, as we're seeing in the story that that she's telling. I think you bring up some really excellent points about how perhaps in some policy areas rather than others, we see there's more democratic accountability, you know, more people get a say. I think maybe another dimension of that is what level of government are we talking about? And to be more clear, maybe, maybe what I mean to say is it seems like there are times when elites do a lot more damage to democracy than the public. And so here, 
we see that, and this is something that we've talked about, is that there are times when the public really does a lot of work to get something done, and then we see it undone at the legislature. So maybe the public is really working hard to produce democracy at various levels, only to sometimes see it subverted by their political leaders. Uh, yes, especially when you think about how cities and states are controlled by very different forces. And I mean, this is where mm-hmm. we started out talking today and something I think she knows really well in that book, you know, especially around a lot of these fiscal issues, states are going to try to exercise a lot of control and they're responding to different constituencies and they have uh, different ideological interests than people within the within the city itself might might have. Yeah, I mean, this is a tough problem because we have these in structural inequalities that don't get fixed even through mm-hmm. the emergency management. And so there are problems that are fixed perhaps, but there are so many things that are just not solved by just cutting in through austerity and by trying to run a city mm-hmm. or a government, generally speaking, like a business. Well, and I mean, fiscal federalism would tell you there's some issues and some kinds of things where localities can better deal with them. And there are some kinds of issues that really need to be elevated up. And redistributive issues certainly need to be brought up to higher levels of governance. Very difficult to be able to do at a local level. Just to push back on that, just kind of believing that local people, that regular people have good ideas and have a good sense of what it is that they need to move forward, right? That they they have innovations, they have ideas, they know how their daily life works, they know how their community works. And it seems that we miss a great deal of opportunity and human resources by eliminating essentially the democratic process for just regular people to have a place to intervene or at least to make suggestions around how their city should be run. I'm really thrilled that we got to learn more about Ashley Nichols's work and to learn more about Flint. For me, I think, you know, we have all been just kind of looking aghast at the water crisis and to have really a better understanding of the local nuances and also the kind of state complexities in politics to just really help to bring to light how such a disaster happened, even though that was not her goal. But in doing so, she just kind of really illuminates the complexities and and the nuances of emergency managers and and state takeovers and what that means for democracy at the local level. In the hands of a skilled researcher, the sort of deep dive that she does into a single community really does teach you a lot about who has power and who doesn't and how that power can be used. So uh, thank you, Ashley. That was really interesting. For Democracy Works, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Candace Watts-Smith. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 